This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is the author, scholar, and historian Diana Butler-Bass. Diana is well known for her many books on church history and American Christianity. One of her earliest books, a memoir titled Strength for the Journey, A Pilgrimage of Faith and Community, was just re-released as a second edition, and our conversation today discusses and parallels much of what she writes about in that book. Now, in classic evangelical fashion, this long-form interview dives into Diana's life story and explores many of the things she discusses in that memoir, things like her youth and Methodism, her time at Christian college and evangelicalism, and her path forward after leaving evangelicalism. We, of course, also can't avoid things like the 2016 election, as well as the state of evangelicalism and American Christianity today. It's a really great conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it. You can find links to Diana's memoir as well as pre-order information for her upcoming book, Grateful, in the show notes below. I also want to take a moment to thank everyone who supports the show via Patreon. Through your support, I'm able to cover the cost to produce and host this show, which makes it all possible. If you enjoy the show and want to see more content like this and allow me to expand the scope of the show, please go over to patreon.com slash pod and support the show today. You can also support the show by leaving a review and rating it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That is one of the best ways to help others find the show and learn about it. And there's actually like a, a huge reason why every single podcast you listen to mentions it. And it's because it really matters to the great algorithm in the sky that determines the fate of all podcasts. And taking a minute to rate it five stars and leave a quick review would just mean the world to me. And I appreciate everyone who's done that so far. Now, if you want to continue the conversation, you can, of course, join the Exvangelical Facebook group, which, as of this recording, has over 1,800 members and is a very lively place for discussion around Exvangelical topics. And, of course, you can also follow me over on Twitter at BRChastain, and you can follow the show on Twitter at ExvangelicalPod. Now, all right, everyone, let's get right to this conversation with the wonderful Diana Butler-Bass. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Diana Butler-Bass. She is an author, speaker, and scholar who specializes in American religion and culture, which is exactly why I wanted to talk to her. Um, and she has also written several books, including the Strength for the Journey, which is a spiritual memoir, as well as Grounded, and the upcoming book, Grateful. Uh, Diana, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you, Blake. We've talked about doing this for a long time, and here we, we're, fi- we're finally on it. I'm, gr- <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. Yes, yes, me too. Um, well, a lot of times, most of these conversations really just start with where you grew up, where you, uh, what your initial sort of religious experience was. Um, so could you just tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah, sure. I was actually uh, born in the last months of the 1950s 
in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. So I grew up in a different time and really kind of a different place, a very working class, sort of blue-collar, mid-century family with barely sort of a flash of feminism or anything. I mean, it was it was literally like the old Leave it to Beaver world. <laughs> and um, my my church background is interesting because my this little neighborhood that I that I grew up in was actually established in the turn of the 20th century and my great 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 or great great I can't remember how many greats back but <laughs> my grandparents um, a couple of generations back were among the founding families in this little neighborhood it was called Hamilton in Baltimore and one hmm. time it was actually a, a sort of separate part of Baltimore and then it became incorporated into the into the city and so my my ancestors had this little floor shop and they owned several small houses um, around in this neighborhood where different members of my family lived. And my great-great-grandfather had established the cornerstone of the elementary school where I went to school and oh, wow. was on the volunteer fire department. And uh, those same ancestors are, were also founding members of the Methodist Church in that neighborhood. It was called St. John's um, United Methodist Church, although I guess then it just would have been St. John's um, Episcopal Methodist because the United Methodists didn't come around until the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I was I grew up in this little neighborhood that was actually kind of like living in a a small town um, from a different era of American life. Almost everybody in this little sort of corner of Baltimore was German background. And if you weren't Methodist, you were most likely Catholic. Um, there were there were also Lutheran churches um, there too, but for some reason they weren't nearly as big as the Methodist or the Catholic Church. Um, and there were a couple Presbyterians we knew, some Episcopalians, um, but that was that was really about it. I did not know anyone personally who was Jewish, um, and uh, there were very few African American people. Um, right around where we lived. There were lots of African-Americans in Baltimore, but it was very, very segregated. So it was a whole different kind of time and place. And that was my childhood in this Mm. white Methodist church in an incredibly uh, sort of ethnic, racial corner of Baltimore City that was Mm. like living in, almost like living in another century. Wow. Yeah, that I mean, that is a very sort of separated from the here and now sort of <laughs> um, experience, but um, definitely, like you said, of a time and place. Yeah, it had a lot of character. the The person who is most famous, who was from that neighborhood, um, I'm sure that you probably know him, and some of your listeners do, is uh, John Waters. Oh, really? Um, yeah, you know <laughs> the. Very flamboyant, uh, eccentric, uh, gay writer, movie producer. Um, the yeah, and uh, that, that he, he mustache. <laughs> yeah, and a lot of his films and his books um, take place in the Baltimore that I, that part of Baltimore that I remember from my childhood. He hmm. writes very specifically about Hartford Ro- Hartford Road, which is the road where my um, family's floor shop was and the same road that the Methodist church was on. Um, oh, wow. So it's, it's really interesting that 
evidently that there's some sort of really compelling um, thing about growing up in an environment like that that makes uh, at least some people want to write about it and have to work out its its uh, demons because <laughs> it was yeah. it was charming in some ways, but it was as I already indicated, it was racist. It was very narrow, and it was very insular. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That that's a, a that. I'm sure that dynamic was replicated, you know, throughout the United States that within that sort of racial segregation in my area, Chicago, that was certainly the case as well, where there was just very clear racial divides throughout the city. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going uh, specifically into sort of the the church environment that you grew up in, um, I also I grew up. My childhood was was at an uh, at a Methodist church uh, in a small town in Indiana, but nonetheless, it was a, uh, a Methodist church. And I'm always curious how different Methodist churches sort of the services were. What Did yours, were they closer to like a high church service or were, was it sort of somewhere in, and a lot of Methodist churches now are very contemporary as far as um, their service style and everything. But what was, what was yours like growing up and what do you remember about it? My sense about it is that it was pretty, what I would call, broad church uh, Methodist, a very typical kind of mid-century Methodist Protestant service. Mm-hmm. Um, I I can imagine that some Lutheran churches or Presbyterian churches would have very similar kinds of services. So there was, you know, kind of a, a very skimmed-down liturgical framework. Mm-hmm. And later on, I, of course, I would find out that the Methodists, what we had of a liturgy, actually came from the Book of Common Prayer used by Episcopalians, but it was very abbreviated. Mm-hmm. Um, and we used a mostly, you know, traditional kind of classic Wesley hymns, and there was a robed choir and a, a pastor who also wore robes. Mm-hmm. And the, the sanctuary was, you know, old-fashioned, fairly traditional pews of balcony. And um, I think the things that I remember the most uh, from it is my mom and I used to like to sit in the balcony. Uh, I was the eldest. And so my brother and sister oftentimes got shoved into Sunday school when I got to go to the big church uh, with my mother. My Mm -hmm. dad was a florist and often worked on Sunday morning. And so he 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 didn't usually go with us. Uh, sometimes he'd go on Easter or Christmas, but that was about the only time he went to church. So my mom and I would sit up on this balcony, and I can remember standing up there with her, um, barely able to read, um, with a hymn book open, and sort of pretending that I could read the words and mouthing what I heard, you know, from the choir, what my mom was trying to teach me. She would point to the words as we were singing them. And um, it was a very warm sort of environment in that way for me. I felt very connected to my mom. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing, and I, I actually wrote about this in Strength for the Journey, my most uh, vivid memory of that church is watching the sunlight fall through the stained glass windows down onto the floor of the sanctuary across the pulpit. And so the interplay of the the music and my my mother and the sort of the warmth of the place and the light um, it's very, creates a, a, an impression uh, for me of 
mystery and also uh, safety. So that was really sort of my first first idea of the church. Um, it was was not in any way uh, negative. It was it was all very positive. It was visual. It was artistic. It was about relationship. It was um, inviting. So so I have some pretty good memories going back to my earliest days of of, of all of that. Yeah. Yeah, and those those memories are very, um, very important and very impactful. I'm sure to have that. Sort yeah, of... they really they really are, and they're connected oftentimes to rituals, um, you know, and holidays. Mm-hmm. So you know, I I'm taken immediately back to those places during Christmas, especially Easter, um, baptism. Sometimes I'll actually remember baptisms that I witnessed in that church. So so there's a connectedness, I think. That is a thread of my life that goes all the way back to my first memories of being mm. in a congregation. Yeah, yeah. So your um, y- your family then eventually moves to another part of the the states, correct? You um, that's what you mentioned in the the book that we that we've mentioned um, is Strength for the Journey, which is your your spiritual memoir. Um, so it's this journey throughout all these different churches you're a part of. Um, but when you're when you're still an adolescent and when you're still a child, your family moves to uh, another area. Could you tell us about what what that what that move sort of um, like? What, what sort of church you ended up in, and what that sort of move was like for you? Yeah, the the move happened in two stages. Um, the first stage of leaving that neighborhood that my ancestors had founded and that church that we'd founded in school and all that kind of stuff. So there were at least three generations of my family that had lived in this same physical space. Um, And then 1968 happened in Baltimore City. And it it was stunning, really, to be a child. And to live through, you know, I guess, you know, my daughter probably understands this now because of 9-11, but I mean, to live through the riots in Baltimore City, and we were about a mile away from where there was terrible rioting, and you wake up in the morning and you could smell the city was burning, and there were police cars constantly, and there was one point where the National Guard came through our neighborhood and they told us that we had to be ready to evacuate. And so, you know, my parents were just horrified um, by all of this. And what I, what, I, what I didn't know at the time, you know, all I knew is that there was this extraordinary amount of violence and that somehow this was related um, to uh, black people being angry at white people. Um, but I, you know, I, I was nine years old, so mm-hmm. there's no way that I'm going to know all the complexities of the civil rights movements or anything like that. But what, what was going on with the adults around me at that moment was that they were angry for the most part about the civil rights movement and they were angry about, um, integration. And a lot of my parents' friends had already moved away from that neighborhood and they were, They'd moved to places like York, Pennsylvania, and out into the out to Baltimore County, and some had even moved south to cities like Atlanta, or they'd gone to Florida, other places. And so, what what I didn't know is that we were part of 
white flight away from Baltimore City. Uh, but my parents, they stayed for a, while, a little bit, um, and then in 1970, they built a house out in Baltimore County, and so we moved, and we were, we were a few miles further away uh, from downtown, and it, it, that was beautiful and amazing place to live. I actually loved it. It's a gorgeous part of the world, and I once in a while drive up there just to kind of feel it. It's very rural and there are a lot of farms. Uh, I think that's one of the things that later will influence when I write Grounded. Um, I have this, even though I was a city girl, I, I have this incredible affection for farms and rural landscapes uh, from when we lived in Baltimore County. But um, when we were there, there was some crisis that happened in my family between my who owned the florist shop and my parents. And my parents literally um, took a map of the United States, hung it on the wall, and threw a dart at it. Oh, wow. And I know, it was <laughs> like, <laughs> and the dart landed on Arizona. I think they were aiming, you know. <laughs> they wanted some place that was like sunny and far away. So that's the, the that's where we moved. And from the time that they told us that we were moving, which was in, I think, September of 72, um, it was maybe six weeks later, that we were packed up in a Ford station wagon and making our way across the United States to live in this place where no one in my family had ever even been. Wow. And, and so the two-part move had a, a lot to do with the religious uh, part of my life, because when we moved from the city out to the county, um, my parents my parents stopped going to church, which was interesting. Um, they just were they just didn't want to make the drive in the morning. I think they were still worried about the way the city was quote unquote changing, and they and everybody that they had known in this neighborhood uh, for their whole lives um, had moved. And so the, the, basically that neighborhood sort of collapsed with the departure of all these old families. So the houses were deserted and things were starting to fall apart and the businesses were less successful and uh, the churches were emptying. It was really um, a, a quick decline. Um, and so, so that they didn't want to go back. So for a couple years, we sort of didn't go to church. And then we moved to Arizona. Um, the first thing they did was uh, pick up and start going to the Methodist church. That was in, in uh, Scottsdale. I was confirmed there. And uh, after my confirmation, I just, I just was sort of interested in my own spiritual life. I started talking to friends in high school. And I realized, hey, there are more than just Methodists and Catholics in the world. <laughs> <laughs> And um, by then, my parents were like, oh, you know, if you want to go to the Methodist Church with us, that's fine. But is there someplace else you want to go to, you know, go ahead and explore? And this is in the 70s, you know, and your parents were telling you to go explore something. It's like, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'll do that. And so I was just this, I was this profoundly nice and sort of naive kid, you know. I, I suppose there was a lot of bad things I could have explored. But I wound up personally going to a fundamentalist church. And that was my big rebellion, <laughs> 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 is that I rebelled against my 
my family's very quiet, sort of insular, private, and uh, Methodism um, by joining this uh, very conservative evangelical church in Scottsdale, Arizona, and that's the place that my life story really changed, and it really diverted from just being my family's story to being my story Hmm. um, at that point, too. Yeah, I do think that's an interesting. So, um, I mentioned. I think I mentioned on Twitter that 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 there are these broad strokes where, like, I went when when, when uh, grew up Methodist, then had a foray in evangelicalism, and, and now attend an Episcopal service. But um, so, I am curious, like the way you the way you mentioned that um, that's when your your sort of story departed um and that this is also it coincides with your adolescence um what was it about the evangelical services that appealed to you sort of as an adolescent and um as a sort of departure from uh from the faith that you were brought up in because it's the same faith i mean ostensibly it's christianity uh christianity is a very big religion with a lot of different permutations but mm-hmm. um but the services and many of the, and and the beliefs are different um so what what about that it being that moment in your in your life your your adolescent uh and also the type of service and the type of beliefs what what was it that sort of that compelled you to attend those services i think i think there were really two things. Uh, one that I've written about very widely, and the other that I have not written about nearly as much. And uh, the two things are, first, I was always interested in the, in the um, spir- in spiritual experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that that just, that's the very best part of Methodism. And the way we started this conversation, when you asked me what I remembered about the Methodist Church, you know, it wasn't a sermon or it wasn't doing good. Um, it was a little, you know, we could go more on to something like vacation Bible school or you know, sort of those things, which I do remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but the real things that I remember were music and art and beauty and these feelings and light and these sounds of everything. And so there was some way um, that as, an, as, a, as a really little kid, um, all that stuff combined for me and created a sacred environment where I felt safe, I felt the presence of wonder, I felt God. And so even though the Methodists have moved oftentimes very far away from the original impulse of John Wesley Wesley with his heart being strangely warmed, Mm -hmm. um, somehow that all still snuck through in that goofy church on Harford Road for me. Uh, in Baltimore City. And so for me, spiritual experience was the primary reason and that anyone should ever be part of a congregation. Mm-hmm. And when we moved to Scottsdale, that was not what was present in that church in Scottsdale at all. Um, it was an incredibly dry um, Methodist church. And um, I mean, I can't even say that it was terribly oriented towards social justice or any of the other kinds of really good things Methodists often do. It was literally just the sort of, if you, if you were a Methodist and you moved to Scottsdale 
and you wanted to make good business connections and you wanted to get your kids confirmed, that's where you went to church. Mm-hmm. It, it was, it was boring. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, I mean, I would sit there and, and I got confirmed like my parents wanted me to, and we read the Bible and I liked all of that stuff. But then there was just literally nothing uh, for a teenager in the 1970s that felt relevant in any way, shape, or form to my life. And so that's when I started, you know, sort of going around with my friends to see where they went to church. And, And there were some very cool experiences that I had during that time. Um, my Catholic friends were very involved with the Franciscan Renewal Movement, which was basically charismatic Catholics. And I'm always surprised I didn't become a Catholic because I just I just loved that. We you know we would go to mass and it was great fun and I loved the Eucharist. And uh, those were in the days in the 70s when they were literally the priests literally just didn't even care you know who was in the room. They were basically throwing bread at people you know. <laughs> saying, here, eat Jesus, you know, <laughs> we, we, we don't care if you're a Buddhist or a Jew or what have you, we're just glad you're here, and uh, and it was so amazing, um, I remember how joyful and remarkable those services were, um, but yet the idea of becoming Catholic just seemed kind of exotic and sort of far away in my brain, and so when I wound up going to this fundamentalist church, um, which also took spiritual experience very seriously. Um, it was like, oh, there are Protestants that are this warm and this fun and have interesting music and talk about the Bible in this really natural way and think that God really answers prayer. And uh, so all of that was completely compelling to me. And, and so I was really drawn in on the spiritual experience side of the ledger. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the other piece of it, um, the one that I haven't written uh, about nearly as much, is, hey, I was 14, 15 years old, and it was the 1970s, and we had just moved, you know, 2,500 miles across the United States, and I, you know, I was lonely. I had no, no real friends. Um, was uprooted from everything that I had known in my life, and um, things seemed very chaotic. And there was a lot of chaos at home uh, through, uh, it, on several fronts. Um, later later on, uh, we would find out that my dad was actually bisexual. And um, when we, I think that that's one of the main reasons why he and my grandfather had a falling out. I think that my grandfather discovered that about my dad and um, couldn't, you know, just, couldn't handle that in any way, shape, or form. And um, so that's why they went far away. I think I think that my mom thought if they left, it would cure my dad. And uh, so we got to Arizona, and here's my family, which is in crisis, and my life is on the brink of, you know, teenage hormones and everything else. Mm-hmm. And, um, and uh, Scottsdale Bible Church offered order. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it offered spiritual experience, which was fun and amazing and connected with me very deeply and brought out who I was. But it also offered this very clear-cut vision of good and evil, of right and wrong, of uh, what God desired and what God didn't desire. 
and and that was that was completely compelling uh, mm-hmm. to a kid that was living in this rather chaotic environment. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, especially if there's some sort of youth or social uh, component that that um, that is extremely compelling and almost almost magnetic. That mm-hmm. that uh, that yeah. Uh, if you move somewhere, if you move somewhere far away, then there's there's a very good chance that you could find a friendly youth group somewhere. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and and it's interesting to me that you know, in a sense, looking back on that moment in my own life, I was almost perfect for what they offered. <laughs> you know, it was the 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 side of the emotional, uh, spiritual peace, meeting Jesus in your heart you know, sitting around campfires and crying, having your prayers answered, believing in this, you know, beautiful, amazing God through music and friendship and all those things. And then the other side is that really hungry, searching, eager for certainty person. And I was, I was so deeply both of those things that, um, you know, I may have well had just, you know, fundamentalist printed across my forehead (laughs) (laughs) at that moment you know and and so that was that was where I went yeah and um like I said I've written far more about the spiritual experience part I I don't know that I've ever really I've, I've never written down in a book all the stuff about my dad but I've talked about it in social media quite a bit and um all my friends know it my family is well aware of the struggles we went through on that score. And I've thought about writing it more substantially, but the time just hasn't been quite right yet um, yeah. from, my, from my perspective as a, as a writer. Yeah. Switching gears a, a little bit um, from that was was it within that sort of context that you that you learned about Christian colleges and because um, you you eventually attended Westmont. Um, yeah, I did, and I wanted to go to a Christian college really badly. Um, I was the f- first person in my side of the family to ever go to college. Um, I had a cousin who had gone to college and another cousin on, who had gone to technical school um, on the on another side of the family in Baltimore. But in my immediate family, I was the first one. And mm-hmm. so nobody really knew what to do. You know, they, nobody knew how to apply to a college <laughs> or anything. Um, and I graduated very high in my graduating class in Arizona. And in those days, um, if you were in a certain percentage of the class, you could go to either Arizona State or University of Arizona for free. And um, so I was admitted automatically into both of those universities um, (laughs) as an honor student and tuition free. Wow. Yeah. Wow, I wish I would have done that. My daughter always says, "Mom, why didn't you go to U of A?" <laughs> but um, <laughs> but I had, I just had my heart set on going to a Christian college because I wanted to learn more about theology. And um, there were basically three colleges that people went to from 
uh, Scottsdale Bible Church, and they were all in California. It was um, Biola University, uh, Azusa Pacific, and Westmont College. And so I went on a little trip with my couple people from my youth group, and we looked at all three of those colleges. And when I got to Westmont, which is in Santa Barbara, and it's in the foothills overlooking the Pacific Ocean, I felt like I had come home. And I just went, this is where I'm going to college. And um, I applied and was accepted. And it was even late. And they gave me a scholarship. And there I was in the fall of 1977, driving a very beat-up 1972 yellow uh, Dodge Colt up the hill uh, from uh, the freeway, driving up the hill to Westmont and Santa Barbara, and uh, enrolled as a student. Yeah, and I spent four, four years, four <laughs> amazing years actually of my life. Yeah, the, your um, your passages within strength um, do really seem to to bring that to carry that through and and really indicate that that there was a lot of really good formation and experience that you had there. Um, uh, you, you write very very well about how like you sort of found the a very good group of friends that that you felt comfortable sort of exploring um uh worship styles and other episcopalians and and things like that um that that were just very in a lot of ways seemed like a comfortable way in which to explore all those different avenues of of faith is that is that a fair characterization Yes. We, I was really lucky, I think, in certain ways, is that my earliest life in evangelicalism was all before the moral majority. So <laughs> I, was a, I was a Scottsdale Bible Church, which was a fundamentalist church, yes, and it was dispensational, premillennial, so I know all that stuff inside and out. Um, but it was all political, Hmm. Um, you know, it was a, it was about the Bible, and it was about following Jesus, and it was about prayer, and it was about preaching and missions and all of those kinds of uh, passions that came out of evangelicalism that were not about power and control. They were really about service and following Jesus to the ends of the earth, and a lot of lots of idealism. And um, in the late 1970s, in the Evangelical College in California, um, the main influences that were on the student body were things like Sojourners Magazine, and uh, there was another magazine at that time called The Other Side, which oh, was wow. similar, yeah, similar to Sojourners. Um, it was actually published by Ron Sider, um, who I believe is still alive. And we read things like, um, we, we, you know, I'd read Lake Great Planet Earth in, in high school, but by the time we got to college, uh, we were reading, now I can't remember the name of the book, um, the one about feeding the whole planet uh, that, was, that so many evangelicals read at that time. That was essentially a socialist view of the economy. <laughs> Is that like the uh, the whole Earth catalog? Uh, that might be a different thing. That yeah, well, well, it was like that, but it was an evangelical version of it. Now <laughs> I just feel so bad that I can't remember the name of this book because everybody read it at the time, and um, so we were reading uh, the and evangelical feminism had just really started up, um, and so we were 
in the evangelical subculture, but it was very 1970s. Hmm. And so most of the people I knew were anti-war, um, were opposed to the draft when the draft was getting reinstated. Uh, I had a friend <laughs> at Westmont who actually subscribed to a, a Cuban newspaper. And so we would sit around the dining hall at Westmont reading communist literature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is not your parents' fundamentalism, in other words. <laughs> Wow, that, and, that sounds and, idyllic. <laughs> it was pretty amazing, actually. And um, a group of my friends, I was involved with all these different uh, sorts of very experimental um, things that we were doing. Uh, there was a, we, we formed an alternative dorm where people, ha- if you were going to live in this particular dorm, you had to keep a rule of life and that meant you had to have a daily, you know, sort of prayer order. And um, you also pledged to live simply. And instead of the money that you would pay going to the dining commons to a regular menu, um, all the people in the dorm committed themselves to eating vegetarian. And the difference between a vegetarian menu and a carnivore menu was donated to a local food pantry um, from the people who lived together in this dorm. <laughs> and so we had a, uh, we started an urban mission group and we also did these amazing sort of outreach things in um, Mexico where we would go down and uh, work in villages, very impoverished villages in Baja, California, and we're involved in building orphanages. And so, so you know, here's these, these college kids, you know, we were 18 to 22 years old and um, we were literally passionate in every way, shape, and form about environmental justice, social justice, racial reconciliation. We were exploring gay rights. It was the 70s. It was California. We had people who were involved in coming out because of Harvey Milk up in San Francisco. And so the kind of evangelicalism that I was living in the 1970s was not unlike some of the ways I have evangelical friends or post-evangelical friends now, mm-hmm. um, who are in their 30s, 20s and 30s now, who are dealing with issues that back in the late 70s were the same things that we were just like living yeah. um, at, at Westmont on, on literally a daily basis. And, and it, was a, it was a great time uh, to be a, a sort of a young, passionate evangelical kid. Yeah, and and uh, it was like the sky was the limit. And when Jerry Falwell came around in 1980, that was my my junior year at Westmont. We literally laughed at him. We thought, what kind of what kind of evangelicalism is this? Uh, you know, this was not anything that we knew as evangelical. Uh, we thought he was a buffoon, and. Huh. And, of course, we all thought, you know, this was kind of some weird flash in the pan that would never go anywhere. And um, we didn't even understand why the media was paying any attention to him. Hmm. Wow. Because it was, it was that far removed from our experience. And um, so, so it was a really interesting, interesting small corner of evangelicalism to grow up in, and yet we thought it was... Um, we thought it was the whole thing. We thought every evangelical church was like us. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, that is <laughs> that is definitely. I mean, that is so very interesting. Uh, it's just, yeah, because I I went to a Christian school in two thousand one. Uh, so I in my mind I was just comparing and contrasting uh, how very different our experiences were. Um, my first full week of school, um, 9-11 happened. So that changed the entire course of, uh, course of our school. But there was definitely, uh, oh man, your, your experience was so much more like wide open <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, and yeah, it, it yeah. was, and, and that's what I thought evangelicalism was. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. And that was my experience. And I didn't have any reason to not believe it. And it, because of my friends and because of the, the evangelical environment that we found ourselves in um, at Westmont. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, I So moving moving forward in, in time, like you, you continue your studies, you, you, um, begin to sort of see this, this part of the moral majority that, that, that really starts to talk really loud on the national level. Um, it really starts to impact the national discourse, but at the same time you're, you're pursuing your graduate work. Um, Mm -hmm. and that involves some time at, at Duke, which I've I've heard other people describe it as a very good place for uh, evangelicals to ask probing questions. Like, um, you know, if if you send uh, within the context of when I heard it, it was like if you send someone who has an evangelical background to like Union, uh, and this is within like the two thousand two thousands context. If you send them to an extremely liberal place, then they might not have a foothold. Um, but if you, but Duke is very, very good at being a sort of centered place that, that can speak to both the evangelical experience as well as, um, as well as a more liberal experience, so to speak. Um, when you were starting, when you were continuing to, to invest, to study, you, you begin to study church history and teach on it. Um, how, did did your own sort of belief in your own sort of experience within evangelicalism and the Episcopal services, then by this time you're also attending Episcopal churches, correct? So, Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, the, by the way, the title of that book was Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, uh, and okay. I knew I could remember it. <laughs> it's just like it, it popped in my brain. Um, yeah, you know, so for all the wide openness of, of Westmont and everything that I that I learned there. When I got out, there was a, a sort of a series of events that led me to rethink that openness, um, and it had to do with I think for women in your early twenties when you kind of don't know what way to turn, you turn towards authority figures that you respect and you look at those people and you say I want to be just like that that person mm-hmm. or that's what I want to do with my life and so even though I was very obviously always a person who was really interested in questions very interested in intellectual um, aspects of faith and the world and a really good student um, 
when I started looking around for the professors that I really liked, um, I became very influenced by a few very conservative professors at the seminary I had chosen to go to. I had chosen to go to Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. And Gordon-Conwell, and th- this to me was the moment when I started really seeing evangelicalism, the, a different side of evangelicalism. Um, Gordon-Conwell was in a big fight when I was there in the early 1980s. And the fight was between the more open-ended kinds of evangelicals, the type of people I had known at Westmont, and uh, neo-Calvinist evangelicals. Mm. And again, in the early 1980s, we didn't have a name for those guys. Um, They were mostly Baptists, mostly Southerners, and they loved John Calvin, and they hated Pentecostals, and they hated social justice, and they didn't like women, and uh, they were sort of rigidly opposed to anything that they thought was leading towards theological liberalism. And at that moment at Gordon-Conwell, here I was just a, you know, just a wee student, and I'm looking at this fight, and the people who were like the people I had known in California, they lost. They were on the short end of all of the battles that went on there. As a matter of fact, people were fired, run off, stripped of tenure. It was was awful to watch. And the people who won were the other side, these neo-Calvinist type, all men, um, and they were almost all Baptist and free church um, people. And if you wanted to survive in that atmosphere intellectually, in any way, shape, or form, you had to be on their side. And there were some people there who were really compelling intellectually and very convincing. And I bought their line uh, for a few years. Uh, It wasn't very long. It was only about five or six years that I sort of thought that they were on the right side of history and on the right side of the Bible, on the right side of faith. And um, they really brought me over to their cause, and they were very excited about that because they wanted to have really smart women on their side so that they actually could not be accused of being sexist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, so, so I, I um, deferred to them. Um, intellectually, and uh, most of my friends from Gordon-Conwell remember me from that time of my life, of that sort of giving in uh, to that Calvinist wave uh, that struck Gordon-Conwell and going along with it. And so by the time I graduated from Gordon-Conwell and I was on my way to Duke um, to do Ph.D. work, that's where I was. And so I arrived at Duke having had the Westmont experience of the very liberal evangelicalism and then having been influenced by this incredibly conservative Calvinist evangelical wave at Gordon-Conwell. And I had gotten married to a fellow who graduated from Westminster Theological Seminary. And basically, 
it was like living in a prison. And um, mm-hmm. it was the wrong time to get married. It was the wrong person. And I didn't even know who I was. So at Duke, what happened was I was asking myself an enormous number of questions about these two sides of evangelicalism that I had experienced and about myself as a person and who I really wanted to be and who I was called to be. And so I did my work at Duke, and I did it with a lot of passion because there was I didn't know what else to do. <laughs> I threw myself into the books because it was the safest place to be. And uh, and Duke really served me well in that regard. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a great place to ask questions because it was both challenging and safe. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was actually changing a lot more than I think anybody at Duke knew at the time because um, I was really, really, really listening. And once, I was just a bit bolder um, when I finally graduated. I was on my way to teach. I realized that I needed to um, be my truest self and not just be imitating people that I thought I wanted to be like. And so I, I let myself out of my own prison. And uh, that's when um, that's when I think that my my real voice as a writer is. But do play to it appreciate how you sort of chronicle several of these like personal revelations that you have um and there are two in particular that that really stuck out to me um there's one in which you you're you're really journaling or meditating on on a um on a sermon you'd heard about the inclusivity of God's love and then there's another in which you you were ta- you were teaching a course about um you were teaching a course about that uh, I believe the for the topic of the particular lecture was about like how Genesis what Genesis can tell um, people about the the nature of man. Um, so there was this connection between anthropology and the creation myth. Um, and and you asked the class just uh, what what does Genesis one three tell us about people and. Uh, a, a young woman in your class says that it tells me that God made me evil through and through. <laughs> and then you, <laughs> and then you take, I almost jumped over the desk. <laughs> <laughs> I right. was so upset. <laughs> yeah. And to me like that, um, when in that passage, it, it was one of those sorts of passages that when you're reading it, it sort of speeds up. <laughs> and so, um, so within that passage, you, uh, you tell everybody to, open it up and and you know say what does what does god say 
about his creation, that it's good, that it's good, that it's good uh, after everything. Um, and I thought that that was very indicative of sort of how um, I think many people can relate to that as far as um, the sort of tensions that you found yourself in uh, between amongst all these different um, expressions of, of evangel- simply just evangelicalism, not not another form of Christianity, but just within evangelicalism that, I mean, uh, to have that sort of, uh, to show your students that um, is is a really a, a way in which it seemed like um, you were working out the, all these crazy tensions that you, they, um, and pulls between these two different things before, as you said, sort of finding your voice, um, which, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that that passage in particular, I think a lot of our <laughs> a lot of our listeners could really identify with. Yeah, I think it's we don't stop to think about it, but many of the teachers who have this had probably the greatest impacts in our own lives. They're standing up in front of classrooms and they're sharing out of their experiences, you know, their struggles. The the professor that influenced me. So much um, when I was at Gordon Conwell, um, had a very difficult, very fraught um, kind of background that he had come to, and the, the 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 orderliness and the cleanness and the conservatism of Calvinism um, for him was his his spiritual experience, you know, and he was deeply passionate about it and it was deeply important to him. And that that day in that classroom at at Westmont, when I, I, that's where I returned to teach, the same place where I had been a student. I don't recommend anyone ever do that. Um, <laughs> but uh, there I was standing <laughs> in front of this classroom of, of students, and I realized um, that it was, I was not just teaching about the doctrine of the anthropology and the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, and it was an introduction to the Christian doctrine course. Um, but I was actually standing there in the crux of my own dilemma. And the way that I've framed that, even here with, with you, is that the dilemma was between having this very primal um, understanding of the presence of God for as long as I could remember um, as a child, and then running into sort of the disorderliness of the world. And if we can explain disorderliness, there was a kind, there was sin that I certainly experienced. There was violence in the world that was immediately around me, both as social sin and violence. But then there was also this deep sort of confusion in my own household. And, you know, having a father who was a closeted gay man in the 1970s, what that did for me was it created this intense uh, shame that was just thrown on top of our family, like, you know, uh, a thick layer of mud that was very hard for any of us to get out from underneath. So I literally had the experience of both a feeling of the tremendous goodness and beauty and 
intimacy and wonder and close relation with God, with the divine, with sacredness, not feeling disconnected in any way, shape, or form from all of that, and then this other thing. Mm-hmm. And this uh, and this other thing really wasn't, in a sense, original to me. I did not experience sin as shame for something that I did. I my experiences, my earliest experiences of sin, were things that other people did to me. And yet, my tradition told me, "Oh, that's original sin, and you're a sinner from your birth," and blah 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 blah, and all that stuff that we have been taught in evangelicalism, and then when I'm standing there and I'm trying to teach this to this room full of 18-year-olds, I realized it was a lie. And it was it flew, it flew in the face of my own life experience and that that I couldn't lie about that anymore. And so when that young woman said, God made me evil through and through, there was a kind of a desperation that set into my own heart. It was like, no, that's not true. And I was saying that not only to the classroom, but I was saying it to myself. Yeah. And and what was a piece of that story uh, that is now clear to me that was not clear at the at that moment. There are four students from that class who went on and got PhDs in theology and all of whom are now feminist or uh, queer or social justice theologians somewhere. Mm. And um, just absolutely terrific students. And every one of those kids, uh, kids now they're all people in their 40s, every one of those young adults now has come back to me and said that, that they remember that class too. Oh, wow. And that it was one of those moments that was just like the the curtain was ripped back for everybody in that room, and we saw God and ourselves differently. It was it, it was truly one of the moments of my life that I hang on to. I, I'm so amazed that you felt that power in what I wrote in the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was very. I mean, it was very um, powerful. It like that that was very resonant, um, and I think uh, really it it par- it segues really well into um, another sort of type of faith that you've written about um, elsewhere, which is this uh, which you term generative Christianity and uh, your your people's history of Christianity book, um, which I think is also a very sort of compelling. Um, term just because, well, I, I think for a lot of people, like their the faith of their birth, um, the faith the the Christianity that um, even if it's not the Christianity, the, the even if evangelicalism is not something that they encounter from birth or what have you, however they encounter it, um, it's very very clear that Christianity is not an an always positive sort of thing. In a lot of ways, it's the mm-hmm. it's the opposite. That's I mean, much of the show is dedicated to talking about religious trauma, <laughs> but um, but the idea and what you what you talk about and specifically in in that book is generative things, things that are life giving or affirming. Um, and I, I know this is just as another open question, but but. And 
before I even ask the question, like for me, that that passage was a very a very generative sort of affirming thing. That this is this is the way, <laughs> this is the the way that a, a passage like this should be should be interpreted to be something that can build up the reader, and not in some sort of I'm making up my own meaning sort of way, but in a way that is actually still faithful to the text, um, which I which I think is very compelling. So, um, but in regards to to what you've sort of what you've written about elsewhere, which is. Um, Christianity that is generative, um, mm-hmm. as in juxtaposition with this with this sort of seedy underbelly that not just evangelicalism but but Christianity at large has, in which it's in which more uh, you know I, the words are sort of failing me right now, but but it's just it's what it's what we all know that Christianity can can be harmful to. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I think that th- this passage is really important in understanding that seedy underbelly, um, and it certainly was for me. You know, I think that it's been a while since I, I read that chapter, but if I, if I remember correctly, I talked about how I left the classroom and walked down the hill knowing that I had just basically undone my whole relationship with evangelicalism, mm-hmm. because that was like that was like the that's the cornerstone. Yeah, um, is that belief and that sort of original sin? Yeah, and if you don't if you don't believe in that, you're out, and that's that's the foundation of the whole thing. You have to believe that every single person is a sinner from their mother's womb, and you have to believe that creation is deeply and completely corrupted with that sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and that then sets the stage, of course, for for redemption and salvation and the end, you know, the end things, um, in heaven and hell. Um, so the whole trajectory of evangelical theology is based right there in Genesis 1 through 3 on the doctrine of original sin, which, of course, is not in the Bible. Um, it's a reading about the Bible, and it's a reading that developed in Western Christianity, um, the word sin doesn't even appear in the first three chapters of Genesis. It doesn't appear till Genesis 4. And when it does appear, it appears it's talking about violence. It's not talking about the choice that Adam and Eve freely made in Genesis 2 and 3. Mm-hmm. It's talking about the violence that results from the choices we make. And that's what sin is. Um, and this is a really old argument in Christianity. It goes back to Augustine and Pelagius. Augustine said, no, you know, original sin. And, you know, he laid it out. It became the doctrine of the Western Church. And he took on the British monk Pelagius about this. And Pelagius actually did not believe in it. Pelagius believed that we were created good, that God's creation was good, and that we were given choice. And that sin was a result of our choices. Um, sin ultimately is in the sinning. And that sin is not something that's forced on us from outside, but sin is something that happens as a result of the kinds of moral, the moral choices we make. Mm-hmm. And so Pelagius, you know, is basically silenced and 
and Western theology became completely and utterly Augustinian. And so it does not matter. Evangelicalism has a particular take on that. But if you're a Lutheran or if you're a Presbyterian or if you're a Roman Catholic, you also believe in some form of that Augustinian narrative, which has a very low regard for creation and a very dim view mm-hmm. of human nature. And all of the level of, of I think, um, just guilt and shame and despair that has come out of that theological vision that's present in Western theology, um, I think it has been psychologically incredibly harmful uh, to our our churches, our culture, the way that we understand who we are in the world. And it's not the only way of being Christian. There are other ways of, of thinking about these issues. Uh, but it is certainly the way the West has thought about them. Mm-hmm. It's, so we all suffer from that in some way, shape, or form. So you're right to say it's not evangelicals, but evangelicals heightened it to an art form. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yes, that's very true. I think I think shame is is a key motivator, and I think it, it's made that way because of the logic of what, to as you said, I mean, it's, it flows from the logic of original sin. Um, yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so you um, you've written a lot about the sort of different um, s- spiritual migrations that have happened in the United States over the last forty or fifty years, um, and a lot of those things have. That's a fascinating area. Area. Um, it's it's the thing that fascinates me too. I wrote um, my master's thesis on creation care and evangelical politics. Um, because there, oh, wow. <laughs> because there was a brief period in the mid early to mid two thousands where evangelicals cared about creation, um, and yeah. then then the financial bubble happened and it all went away. Uh, but so but so there are these ebbs and flows of all sorts of different things, and but there is um, evangelicalism in particular. Um, and again, the name of this podcast is Exvangelical, so there is a <laughs> there is a point of view here uh, that, that that I have uh, in relation to evangelicalism, in particular, pushing lots of people out. Um, but then, even within Evan, it's not a unified uh, it's not a unified movement, even though there's a lot of commonality across a lot of different things. Um, but I am just curious to in what ways you sort of see the current political and social climate affecting those sorts of migrations. And, and also, um, as, a, as an add-on question there, really the, the value or lack thereof with labels associated with that. Yeah, I think it, uh, I, I'm glad that you picked up on the the struggle that I've actually had over the years as a writer to try to come up with a name for what I'm trying to write about. (laughs) And (laughs) clearly what I'm trying to write about is exactly what I've explained to you. And that is a form of Christianity that is um, deeply personal and experiential, Mm -hmm. but at the same time is, is profoundly moved by compassion and 
understands justice as the calling that we all have in the world. And the reason we have that calling to make justice is because we're trying to to justify, to make right um, the the world that has been so tainted by shame and violence and to try to make it more in line with the dream and the intention of God in those first beginning of Genesis. Um, and so, so, so that kind of, that's the vision of Christianity that I think is in the Bible. And that to me is the Christianity that is worth, um, if you're going to be a Christian, I hope that that's the kind of Christian you'll be. And so I have called that alternatively generative Christianity, or uh, sometimes people say, oh, she's a progressive Christian. Some people call me a mystic, you know, all kinds of things. And so I get all kinds of labels, and some of them I have tried on myself. Um, As for evangelical, you know, right now, I... I don't. It just. It I don't see how in the United States it can possibly have a future. Um, it was on the rocks <laughs> before Donald Trump, <laughs> but the, the fact that eighty-one percent of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump, I, I just do not see how a religious movement can ever recover an ounce of credibility um, mm-hmm. in this in this disaster, this moral disaster of this president. Um, so as far as the history of white evangelicalism, white evangelicalism in America, I think that that has come to a thudding end <laughs> um, with the election in 2016. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I do also think is, and, and I, I was saying this um, in public speeches for the last couple years before before Trump is that I was seeing the outlines of some new kind of evangelicalism uh, being born, and that was one that was incredibly pluralistic and diverse um, that had a much larger space um, for the leadership of, of women. And so that I was... I, I, I had thought that if there was any redemption... Uh, for evangelicalism, it would wind up being a multicultural, multiracial um, movement of people who were very committed to Scripture and to an experience of being born again, but yet had a whole different sensibility um, about justice and and gender. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. uh, so that might be being born. Um, and if that's the case, that's that's going to be wonderful, and I think very exciting. And um, I leave that to those leaders to create whatever that will be. Um, but then there are a lot of us who just say, you know, throw up our hands and say, it's we've we've moved someplace else. And um, you know, I, I I really feel like I can bless the project of creating that pluralist pluralist and multicultural, multiracial, and more open-gendered evangelicalism. I'm happy to be friends. I'm happy to see that go well. (laughs) I want it to go well. Uh, But I don't feel like necessarily that's my personal sort of journey or my personal um, project as a writer. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So, so, so I think that that's kind of what's happening. I think evangelicalism, as we've known it, is ending or has ended, and that something new is being born, and that's great for them. And I want to love the, love the new thing um, and be generous as a friend as I can be mm-hmm. to that emergent that emergence. Um, but there's this other thing, too, that's going on, and that is Christianity itself is in bad shape in the United States. And um, as for myself, I'm very interested in just being able to put out into the public square um, and the public conversation a voice of Christianity that is deeply sane and profoundly beautiful and that wants to be open-handed um, to people of a broad range of faiths and to not be afraid of, of um, agnostics and atheists and post-religious people, uh, but instead be working with passion uh, to find a sort of a common ground of empathy and gratitude and, uh, and goodness uh, that we can all find our way back to um, or maybe get to for the first time. Um, mm-hmm. as as a nation. And so so I want Christian Christianity to be part of that um, where that that good new place that we're going to be going to. Um, and I think we are going to. And um, I don't want Christians to be jerks <laughs> um, or left out because of our own ridiculous narrowness and the ways that we've hurt people in the past. It has to be a much more humble and, I guess, generative uh, form of Christianity. And so, so I'm less concerned about it being called evangelicalism and more concerned about the, the beautiful narrative of this ancient way of wisdom that was embodied by Jesus. And to say, hey, look, that, that ancient wisdom is still worth living today. And it has a lot to say about what it means to be an American, what it means to be a North American, what it means to be a global citizen. And it's, it doesn't have to be violent and mean and exclusive. And so that's the, that's the place where I've been throwing my passion uh, for the last decade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, and I'm, yeah, there's definitely a, a lot of, a lot of work to be done and a lot of stories to be told by, a lot of different people, and I think that's an exciting thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I yeah. Do, I do too. I really do. And uh, you know, I think that one of the places where I sort of got a, a, a bit tripped up, uh, I would say about twenty years ago, is I was so wounded coming out of evangelicalism that I, I feel like there were times in which I was working out my own stuff that I was not nearly as generous as the person I know myself to be. And so, you know, at this point, I feel like I'm just much more um, honest about what was both good and bad within my own evangelical story and can be very, like I said, cheering on the heroes of this emerging evangelicalism and be really good friends, actually, with some of those people and and hope that they succeed. Uh, but I don't have to be angry about the about the part that has, you know, just so failed. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm angry as an American citizen because I think they've done great harm to the to the country. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't have to be like, you know, wrapped up in sort of the evangelical 
minutiae piece of it all the time. But over here with the Christian piece of it, you know, that to me, um, there's the word evangelical and then there's the word Christian. And what I would love to be able to do is to um, make space for the word Christian to bring smiles to people's faces again. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) so I'm not really worried about the word evangelical nearly as much as I'm worried about uh, the word Christian. And, um, and, and so that's kind of the, I feel like my life kind of has a, a sweep to it in those way, in that way. And, um, I just I just feel a lot more generous kind of across the board to my own life experience and mm-hmm. to the different places where people find themselves right now. Yeah. Yeah, I think the people trying to to fight for even the word evangelical like Timothy Keller have their work cut out for them. <laughs> but um <laughs> uh uh yeah, I I I appreciate that. I do I I think to your to your point I I do think, you know, there is a lot of I think there's an, a new well of anger for a lot of people. Um, the way okay. you mentioned that there was that there was anger. I mean, I um, the 2016 election really caused a lot of harm to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. But some of that was because of them seeing the the faith that they were a part of, the the demographic that they were a part of, um, betray the country <laughs> in a in a very right. significant way. Um, so, so yeah, I, I do, I, I think that that particular, um, anger has welled up and, and a different, people are on really different, um, periods of their life at different times. And I think that has been, uh, uh, traumatic to a lot of people, but to your point, like a lot, um, you don't have to, <laughs> you don't have to be worried about, um, trying to repair evangelical <laughs> you can be a representative for something else which is which is necessary so yeah and you know it's i i think it's really interesting if you look at the 2016 election and that kind of anger which you know oh man watching my evangelical friends just trying to deal constantly with that figure 81 percent of white evangelicals yeah i have i have friends who say they still wake up with nightmares and that that running through their heads um, it, you know, this whole thing I was talking about in terms of like the, the 1970s and the early 1980s is that evangelical churches made choices. And the choice was that they wanted to be powerful in the terms of the world. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to be rich, and they wanted to have cultural influence. And so this is the story of Genesis. You, you, they, they took an apple from a tree, and they took a bite, <laughs> and they, they wanted to have their faces on Time magazine. They wanted to be the richest people. They wanted to have the think tanks with the biggest influence in Washington D.C. They wanted to be invited to the inaugural ball. They wanted all of that. They made choices. They got what they wanted, mm-hmm. and the Bible tells us all the time there are consequences to the choices we make. And if you make a con- if you make a choice that you're going to serve Caesar instead of following the way of Jesus, that choice will come back to you. And these are the consequences of that. Mhm. Yeah. And 
And, you know, I, got, I lived my young adult life during the first stage of that when people who were somewhat older than me were making those choices. They were making those choices on the behalf of the theological seminaries, on the behalf of denominations, on behalf of organizations, on the behalf of missions agencies, all kinds of things. And I could see some of those choices being made just because of the places I happened to show up at different times. Um, and I can remember looking at that and thinking to myself, that's not the right thing. That's just not the right thing. I don't want to be part of that. How can I get free from this? What? It, why is it wrong? You know, I was struggling to try to understand it theologically and, and morally in all these kinds of different ways. And I just, I couldn't go along with the game plan. And that's, you know, why I got my my bottom kicked out of evangelicalism um, when I was in my 30s. Um, it, it was not originally a willing departure. Um, and And so this is the price for those decisions. And so this is when you talk about the consequences of, of, of choice. And so what I would hope is for younger evangelical people who grew up and who are in the younger cohort of evangelicalism who are so distraught by all of this is to think about that, to try to step out of it for a moment and, and to, you know, let the anger just sort of pass you by and say, oh my gosh, this is exactly like the, like the Bible really says, <laughs> is, that pe- is that people really did make bad choices, and this is really the result of those choices. The wages of sin is death. And in this case, evangelicals chose a sinful way. They chose the way of Caesar, and what it is, the result is, is the death of their tradition. Hmm. Period. End of story. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't mean the whole story's over. It doesn't mean that Christianity has died. It doesn't mean that Jesus is not real. It doesn't mean any of that. But what it means is that people made bad choices and that they have now reaped the benefits of those choices. And so, the people who didn't go along for the ride, it, it's just you move to a different place. You say, okay, I made a different choice. And I'm going to create a world based on that different choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing now, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I do, too. It gives me a lot of hope. I, I, I really, I, I, I dream of people, you know, everybody's got their own stories, and everybody will have to go through what they need to go through. But, um, you know, it really does help uh, the more... Um, I think overt and self-conscious one can be about cycling through the sorts of um, rhythms of anger and shame and coming to new understandings and being able to let things go and finding a place of gratitude. That long cycle, um, if, if it can be done in a more self-aware way and a way of purposeful healing, it's a better experience. 
than sort of bouncing through it in the dark and hurting other people while it's happening. Because that's what I feel like I did in the beginning of my journey. Mm-hmm. It's like I didn't even I didn't even really understand what I was going through, and it, and there were times I was feeling so badly that I hurt myself and I hurt others that I was with. And I I wish I would have known a bit more at the beginning of what I was going through, and I could have saved myself pain. I absolutely agree that um, that I I think people should pursue a sense of wholeness and and it, and that sort of and I think that that cycle of ang- of anger. Um, and letting go of the anger, it's not not going to be the same for everyone. But if if it can be done, and you you'll be a more whole person for it. Um, I totally agree with that sentiment. Um, and uh, yeah, I just totally want to echo that. Um, yeah, it seems like the faster we can move through that cycle, and fast does not mean to undercut it, but the the more quickly that that cycle can complete itself. The, you know, the more time we're going to have to to move to, or to something new and and something more beautiful, because mm-hmm. because you have to get through this part before you can get to that next part. Yeah. Um, so I, I I hate seeing people get sort of bogged down in the pain unnecessarily. <laughs> unnecessarily. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, I think you've written. Uh, you have a new book coming out, and I think it's actually very timely. Um, we all just survived 2017. And we're entering 2018 with a brave face, but you, you you actually have a new book coming out in April called Grateful. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, yeah, it's a, I don't even know how I managed to do it, but um, the contract <laughs> for Grateful was signed at the beginning of 2016, like March or April, something like that. And so I knew going into the summer and fall of 2016, I was going to be writing this book about gratitude. And so I started doing my research, and you know, the, the election just started getting harder and harder. <laughs> and I kept thinking, oh, I can't write this. I'm too distracted. You know, Oh, I don't feel very grateful. So I just did research, and I kind of plotted out the book, and I said to myself, okay, as soon as we get past the election, I'll be in a so much better mood. It'll be so easy to write a book about gratitude. And then Donald Trump got elected president. <laughs> shock for probably about six weeks and could could barely get out of bed. I was crying every day. And uh, so I, but then I kept looking, you know, at this pile of books on my desk and all this, all these research notes. And I thought, I've got to write a book about gratitude. And so on about a year ago, January, 2017, I came down into my office and I said, okay, you've got this commitment, right? And so during the, the the first draft of the book on gratitude was finished on the 100th day that Donald Trump was president of the United States. And <laughs> wow. so so I wrote a book on gratitude in the first 100 days of Donald Trump. And um, let's just say that I've never felt so completely out of sync with what was going on in the world. And the whole project really taught me an amazing amount about what gratitude is and what it isn't. Hmm. And you know, while it is a feeling, it isn't entirely a feeling, um, but that gratitude is really a choice and a practice, and it's an action. It's something we do. And so this book moves through um, 
the dimensions of gratitude as both a feeling and why that feeling can be so elusive. And it also reaches towards um, the can we construct a, a politics of gratitude, um, a vision of the common good that is based in abundance and thankfulness and appreciation rather than scarcity and uh, the kind of gratitude that is a demand when benefactors decide to give away benefits to the poor. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so I talk about the conflict of gratitude that's riddling our culture right now. And um, it's a very surprising book um, about gratitude as a spiritual practice and as social justice. Yeah, that sounds just like the sort of book I should be reading this year. So <laughs> I am excited for it to, to be released. Um, well, uh, Diana Butler-Bass, thank you so much for joining the show. What else um, What else would you like to plug? Uh, your social media, that sort of stuff, anything else? Uh, feel free to. Oh, well, I love it when people drop in at my website where they can sign up for my newsletter and um, once every two weeks. I send out a little newsletter about what I'm thinking about and things that I'm doing, upcoming events, that kind of thing. And uh, I, I'm also occasionally, once a month, once every two weeks, on the John Fuglesang Tell Me Everything show on Sirius XM. And I think my next date on his show will be January 16th. And uh, we'll be talking about religion and politics. So I'm a semi-regular on on his show in oh, the afternoons, yeah. So so I love I love doing that, and uh, uh, I I just hope people will kind of keep an eye out for what I do, and uh, you know I really care about this topic. I care about I care about the community of people who have been associated with evangelicalism and are now trying to figure out where they're going to go. And um, you know I've been there; it's a uh, part of my life story. And I, I hope that my work can give people a lot of, of joy and um, see the possibilities that are present for a deep life of faith, um, well past the days uh, when you used to sit around a campfire um, singing, I wish we'd all been ready. <laughs> <laughs> there is another life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I... And... and and it's one of uh, one I'm very grateful for. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I'll, thank you, thank you for all that, um, and thank you again for for joining the show. Thank you very much. Thanks, Blake.